This episode of Rewind of the Living Dead is brought to you by nightchannels.com, the only place on the internet to get that darker side for your t-shirts and hoodies. These are amazing, unique t-shirts and hoodie designs for occult, music, literature, and films. Of course, they got loads of amazing horror t-shirts. There's this Texas Chainsaw one that you gotta have. They got Alien, but they also got these deep cuts like Begotten. You know Begotten, right? Because you're a hardcore horror fan like I am. Or Guinea Pig. It's like that across the entire site for their music, for the anime, for other kind of media categories. Such cool designs that you're not gonna find anywhere else. Go on there. There's no way you're not gonna get a t-shirt or hoodie. I guarantee you. Tons of color options. The t-shirts have two fabric options. Classic 90s style which is gildan or that great modern combed cotton bella option and the best part about all this these are one-of-a-kind designs and all of it has really great competitive prices in fact if you go there right now and you enter the code rewind at checkout you get 13 percent off that's right 13 percent off at checkout if you let them know that rewind of the living dead sent you uh, so when you're at the next convention or concert and someone asks where'd you get that shirt the only answer is at nightchannels.com. And be sure to visit them on Instagram at nightchannels as well. Um, that's N-I-G-H-T channels.com. Uh, and be sure at checkout to enter the code rewind to get your 13% off. Rewind of the Living Dead is a review show, so spoilers are ahead. Michael David Cummings, better known as Spider One, the lead singer of the hard rock band Power Man 5000, and the younger brother to Rob Zombie, decided to follow his sibling into filmmaking with his own movie after he had previously directed several of the group's music videos. The inspiration for his first film was based around his own writer's block as a musician and how he struggled to live a creative life while also bowing to the demands of his own emotions, not to mention the financial constraints that come along with that kind of career. What resulted was an anthology centered around a group of artists tortured by their own obsessions and insecurities that ultimately ends up summoning all sorts of monsters and demons to haunt them. In the latest episode of Rewind of the Living Dead, we're going to review the new Shudder original from Spider One titled Allegoria and discuss the best low-budget horror films of all time. I'm Patrick Guerra. And Patrick, this week we're going to be taking a dive into an anthology film just dropped recently on our friends over at Shudder. Hey, Shudder. Oh, hello, Shudder. How you been? And uh, it's been a little while. And uh, been- we're going to talk about the new film Allegoria from Spider One. As I mentioned in the intro, he's the younger brother of Rob Zombie. He directed his first feature film, which is a 70 minute anthology, a pretty breezy anthology at that. And, uh, this was a suggestion you made, and I'll say, Patrick, this is a low-budget horror, which I enjoy. I love low-budget horror, actually. Um, I will say there's things I like about this movie. There's things I don't like about this movie. Mm-hmm. What I will say um, is that one of the best and worst things about an anthology is when you get four or five or however many pieces of a story told in one movie, 
and I, I think a lot of horror fans would hear when you hear anthology you immediately think creep show um yeah. some segments are better others are worse and you kind of pick and choose your favorites now there's a good side to that because you can say hey i like those two i didn't like those other two and that's it there's also the side of it's an hour or in this case, a 70 minute film, maybe you like 30 minutes of the film. The other 40 didn't really do a whole lot for you. So it's kind of a mixed bag when you deal with an anthology, because rarely have I seen an anthology and I've seen a lot of them trick or treat. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, of, of solid horror anthologies out there, but I will say that like the vast majority of them, I can't remember ever liking one from beginning to end. Like there was, no, I don't know if there's yeah. ever been one where every segment has been like, Oh man, that was amazing. It's true. I mean, uh, we I think we reviewed on this show. Um, it was scary stories to tell in the dark, right? We did. Yes. Yeah. And then I saw I don't you never ended up seeing Mortuary Chronicles, right? I did not. No, I know that yeah. was one that came out fairly recently or the last couple of years. Yeah. Now, that's one that um, is, I think, comparable to this because it was it was told by it was an anthology told by one director. That's the case here with Allegoria, too. Now, I was halfway through watching this movie because, you know, you and I to, to kind of lift the veil a little bit on on what we're what we do over here. We watch way more movie, movies, horror movies than we end up reviewing. Um, and you and I had been on a bit of a stalemate with streaming horror. You know, there, there's been a uh, like a like a deluge of of uh, of theater horror, of, of big budget, you know, studio horror that's been out and we've been reviewing it. We've been very lucky to do that. But streaming has been sort of hit and miss. We often will watch a movie and then I'll text you and I'll go, uh, did you see that movie? And you'll go, yeah. And I go, well, <laughs> it was bad. And he's like, and you're like, yeah, it was awful. I don't think. And we do, we choose not to review them because a, it, you know, it's, it's not fun for the filmmakers for us to just shit on a movie the whole time. And, and, and by the way, I never actually intend to shit on a movie. I've done it once ever. And I still believe it was justified regardless. I like to be critical about movies, but if I don't have, um, some positive takeaways. Uh, I think it's like it, it would be exhausting for the fans to be listening to us just just berate a movie in like just totally not be into a movie. So we forego a lot of movies um, and a lot of them are low budget. And I was just talking about how we, we basically talk about studio horror all the time. Um, this allegoria is a very low budget. I'm guessing micro budget. I, I tried to track down the budget for this. Um, and I couldn't get an exact number. I'm just guessing that it's this this movie was somewhere sub twenty thousand uh, dollars. It, it if you look at the credits list, it's a it's very few people. It's Spider One writing and directing Chrissy Fox, who I believe is his wife. Um, she's like editing. She's doing part of the composing. She's doing sound design. They were they were basically just at home making this movie and and shooting parts of it when they could. And I think. Uh, Spider did a, 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 a very smart thing. Uh, they often say like, really your movie, whatever movie you're making anthology or, or not is like seven or eight short films that tie together to make one big film. That's usually, they say, they say that's a good way to kind of look at your film from the 30,000 foot view. He just went, well, why don't I just do that with this? Cause it is really just one story. It's one wraparound. The, uh, the characters are all kind of interconnected in some way, shape or form. There's a few that, that kind of divert a little bit. But what Spider did was just go, well, I'll just do that. I'll just make these little short films and tie them into one movie. And that's what they did. And halfway through watching it, I go, you know what this low budget movie is doing that so many have failed you and I, Damon? It's trying its damnedest to be scary. Yeah. 
we watch a lot of i'm not going to mention them right now <laughs> and some of them we actually ended up reviewing and they're just sitting in our lost episodes vault they don't even attempt to be scary or they don't have any idea how to be scary spider chrissy fox and company were trying to be scary and so halfway through this thing i went damon i think this is the next one we need to talk about we were we were kind of in a weird like uh uh, uh, dead zone for movies. And this had just come out, I think maybe a week or two before I, I ended up watching it. So I said, let's give this one a shot now. And there's one more thing I want to say, and I want to disclose this. I, met, I I texted you halfway through. I go, let's review this next. And you were like, yeah, I'm game. That's fine. At the end, I didn't realize a co-producer on this movie is Steve Barton, who I'm an, I, I would say, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, we know each other. We're not friends. Well, what do you call that? Like, uh, colleagues. Not even colleagues. I mean, colleagues implies that we work together. Sometimes we don't. We're just sort of we just know each other. Yeah. Uh, if if he saw me, he'd go, "Hey, Patrick, nice to see you. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing well, Steve. How about you? We we uh, we on this show we have an, uh, journalistic integrity, Damon, because I know you are a journalist by trade. Um, I, there, there's no favoritism I'm putting towards this movie. Uh, Steve does not know that I'm reviewing this movie. I haven't talked to him one iota about it. Um, we, we actually try if we know the person to not maybe review the movie or maybe instead just have them on to talk about the movie to be as fair as we can. Truth be told, this movie is actually made very much so by Spider One and by Chrissy Fox. And I'm sure Steve came in and, and gave some of his veteran knowledge to help them uh, along with the film. Um, so I just wanted to disclose that and let you guys know that everything's on the level. We're not uh, we're not being biased here by by talking about Allegoria. But Damon, uh, what are your first thoughts about this uh micro budget horror film well i will say you know when i realized and i i don't remember at what point in the movie i realized that the stories were interconnected it kind of reminded me immediately of you know my all-time favorite now i'm not saying it reminded me of it in like as good because again i had a lot of issues with this movie but uh it reminded me when i realized the first time i saw pulp fiction and i realized that like all the stories all the characters were connected like beyond Right. You know, Pulp Fiction, of course, you get the opening scene with Jules and 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 uh, and uh, um, uh, Vincent, and then you go right into another scene with Jules and Vincent. And Vincent, you know, is the through line, and then you get eventually to the Bruce Willis character. You know, so I mean, the characters continue, so it's you know, it's one story. You just don't know the yeah. the the pieces of the puzzle, the timeline that Tarantino sets in that movie. When certain parts of the movie are taking place in other parts of the movie, like when. Vincent and Jules show up at the bar wearing the weird shorts and t-shirts right after the scene where they're wearing suits. You're like, how the hell did they get in that? And you don't find out till the end of the movie, why they're in t-shirt and shorts and look like they're going to a volleyball game. This movie's not that, but it kind of hit me in the same direction of when I realized like, Oh, these are all sort of interconnected. Like this is not a true anthology. It is, but it's not because it's an anthology where each, each individual story is its own, but they're also interconnected. So it's a little different. It's a little different in terms of that. A little bit more like uh, there have been some tales from the crypt, you know, episodes like things yeah. tie together. There's little pieces, little puzzle pieces that stick things together. So that was my first thing. So I, I did find that interesting. I did like that element because it was not your typical anthology like, well, I guess Trick or Treat's kind of like that too, where there's a three line. But when you talk about, um, you know, Creep Show, where it's just like, you know, one story here, one story here, one story, and they're going on. So I did like that it was connected in that way. And I also liked the way that they were connected. It wasn't bludgeoning you over the head 
to prove why they're connected. It was little, like, we're talking about, like, a phone call. I'm not spoiling anything by telling you. Like, it's like a phone call, and you realize yeah. one character is talking to another character, and you realize the two scenes are mashed up in time, basically. Not mm-hmm. ruining anything by saying that, but that's kind of how it happens. So it's a very subtle way of doing it, but it's also like, oh, yeah, that's they're connected. So I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that it was a little different way of doing an anthology to where all the stories weren't just pieces and there was no puzzle. They weren't putting them together. They were just individual pieces. Now, to be clear, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not downgrading anthologies when they are just one story, one story, one story. But I like the creativity of this one where it was Mm -hmm. ultimately all kind of interconnected, even if it wasn't full on Pulp Fiction where it all told, you know, a story beginning to end. You know what I mean? Like, it's not that necessarily but it is kind of an interesting twist and turn and, and interconnectivity, which I did enjoy. Um, I will say for a low budget horror film, I thought they did a really good job getting the performances they got. And, and I thought the effects were pretty solid in this movie for, again, what we have to imagine is I would guess, you know, I don't know how much spider one is worth. I imagine he's not, you know, I mean, he's been in power man 5,000 for like, a, you know, for like two decades or three decades or whatever it is. And they got like eight albums. So I can't imagine he's broke. So I would imagine this, this movie's probably, I would guess between like 25 and $50,000 because when I started looking up the budgets of low budget horror films, like I didn't realize the original evil dead had like a 300 some odd thousand dollar budget, which right. when you hear all the stories about Sam Raimi, you know, couldn't do what he wanted to do in the original Evil Dead. He had to do it in Evil Dead 2, which is a lot of ways a carbon copy of Evil Dead, just with more money. I didn't realize the original Evil Dead had that much of a budget. I was like, really? That much? Like, and I know that. <laughs> yes, shocking. When you say $325,000, like in movie terms, that's nothing. Like, that is very low budget. But in my head, I was thinking, like, that was $50,000. Like, not because it looked bad, but because I always heard the stories about how Sam Raimi couldn't do anything that he wanted to do in that movie because he had no money. And he still turned out an all-time classic, by the way. Evil Dead is an all-time classic. Yeah. I love it, and I love Evil Dead, too. But my point being is, like, he that's the story you always hear, right? So, you know, Blair Witch Project was $60,000. Paranormal Activity, I believe, was $16,000. That's probably the lowest one I could find in terms of, like, I think it was twenty five. I've heard different numbers for Paranormal Activity, but I believe twenty five was that. Sixteen was... uh. I, we know for sure basket case yeah so and basket case was 80s so that's a lot earlier paranormal activity yeah. was in you know 2000s or whatever but my point being is like so it's hard to gauge you don't know like, i would guess 25 to 50 thousand would be my guess because they did get a couple of named actors in here they got scout taylor compton maybe she did as a favor but you know you still got to pay them scale I and mean, if you're doing, you know, if you're if you know anything about the, you know, the unions, the actor unions, you have to pay scale. Well, there, to- there's also SAG waivers, which are very commonly done. And I I'm willing to guess that Scout Taylor Thompson, John Ennis, who are probably the biggest names in the movie um, and Chrissy Fox, by the way, who has, has actually been in some stuff. If you if you look her up, but those those are the biggest names. They probably did SAG waivers where they actually probably worked for free on the movie. And then if the movie got sold, they get paid scale. They get yeah. they get their scale so, and but, it gets sold. It, it actually RLJE ended up being the production company and uh, and they sold it to Shutter. That's why we're talking yeah. about it. Through so Shutter. My, my point being though is that I don't think it was like insanely cheap, but I know it wasn't like a huge budget either. My guess would be twenty five to fifty thousand dollars would probably be about yeah, the max. Me too. My point, not going on a long diatribe, people are like, why the hell are you talking about the budget like that? My point being is I thought they did a lot with a little. They did. Yes. Like, it did not. It ultimately, in my opinion, did not look like a super cheaply made film. I thought they did a pretty good job of that. Like, yes, you can tell there's certain things they did that, you know, if they had more money, could have looked better or done better or whatever. 
but ultimately I thought it looked pretty good. Now, the issues I have, you know, really come down to once again, artistic choice. And it's not, I'm not badgering spider one for having a vision that he saw through in this film. And I'm big on that. You know, even the films we review that you and I don't really like, I always tell people go see him. You know, even if we don't like him, go see him and judge for yourself. There are some artistic choices made in some of these stories, not all of them, where it's a little confusing and a little, and I know people probably get sick of me saying this on the show, Patrick, but it's a little too arty for my taste where it's like, <laughs> it's left up to interpretation so much of what yeah. he's trying. There's one vignette in particular, and you probably know the one I'm talking about, which is mostly a solo piece. Oh, is it the painter? The painter where it's just okay, like, yeah. it's just like, you know, very arty, very like, left up to interpretation of what's going on there. And that's the, that's probably the one at the end where I was kind of like, okay, if you subtract that scene from this movie, a, I don't, I don't really think you lose that much. And B that's the one that I just genuinely didn't like the other ones. The very first vignette didn't do a lot for me. It was a kind of a weirder. It was an, I mean, I'm not spoiling it. It was an acting class is where it takes place. It takes place yeah. in an acting class. It wasn't bad by any means, but it was just kind of a weirder opening. And then it went right into the, so the first two scenes are probably the ones I liked the least. And then it picked up when we got right. to the final three. Cause I had texted you midway through and I was like, Oh boy. I was like, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about this one, Patrick. And then the third one started and I started to enjoy it more than the fourth mm-hmm. one. The fourth one was my favorite. And the fifth one, there's five vignettes. Am I right? That's, that's right. I think five. so. Yeah. The fifth one was pretty solid as well. So it's a weird, so again, like an anthology, there were parts I liked and part I didn't like, even though they were all interconnected. To me, this was a film that started off somewhat poorly and ended stronger. I think the last three were much stronger versions, much stronger stories, much stronger characters, dialogue. Everything got better later in the film. I would agree with that assessment. I think those first two uh, vignettes, which is the acting class and then the painter, um, I think what's at least like is just my interpretation as an audience member. I think what Spider One was trying to do was set up the tortured artist thing, and it might have been a little too heavy-handed. I might have dialed it back a little bit. As I think, especially the painter one, the painter one, it's like he's like he's like you know reciting soliloquies about the tortured artist and you go, okay, I get it. <laughs> like, and he, seems, you know, and, he seems, and he seems like a bit of a pompous ass, which doesn't help matters much, you know, like the full on artist routine where he's like, I'm an yeah. artist, you know, like don't judge me. I'm an artist. And it wraps back around because he, he ends up being, um, you know, I, I, this is like a minor spoilerish thing. He, he ends up being the boyfriend of a, of another character, uh, Brody, who's played by uh, Chrissy Fox, but they're not, they're never in the same scenes together. They just kind of those, those, stories tie into each other through a phone call um and he's and he's shitty to to brody so you go okay well i don't really like this guy very much but then you know um the horror starts uh and there's there's horror in both of these first two very heavy-handed like tortured artist vignettes but they both have horror in them and that was what got me and i was with you too because i was like i was like i don't know if this is going to work and then i'd probably text you right around the third one yeah because what i was seeing was for all the tortured artists, like, woe is me, like, art art tears me apart, you know, like, uh, allegories. Um, Spider-One d- did not forget to make this movie 
scary or at least attempt to be scary whether it scared me or not is it's actually not it's not relevant what what is relevant is i saw on screen people trying to scare the audience remembering that they are indeed making a horror movie damon we've been watching a lot of horror movies lately that call themselves horror movies that are not horror movies i mean they're they're suspenseful they could be chilling but they sort of are lost in their own ideas and for all of its you know for all the little flaws it has for being a lower budget movie um that was what got me that's what made me pick up the phone and text you and go let's do this one next this is a horror movie like spider one did not forget to make a horror movie i've watched anthologies that i'm like i don't even think this is a horror anthology like it's barely a horror anthology it's it it i I see a filmmaker trying to make something you want to watch on halloween i can appreciate that yeah, I mean, listen, you know, at the end of the day, for the flaws I have for this movie, I 100% applaud the effort and I applaud the originality of it because there's so much being retread in the world of cinema today. And you and I both know this. This goes beyond horror where we're seeing the same thing over and over and over again. And that's just in general. I mean, that's nothing new. And it's been going on for hundreds of years at this point in terms of like art being duplicated. Right. Um, but. You know, so I applaud Spider One for the originality of this. I applaud him for coming up with a truly original vision. I applaud him for coming up with a couple of truly fun vignettes. Uh, two in particular that I really enjoyed. One that I was like, okay, pretty good. The other two, again, not my favorites. But again, with an anthology, if you take something positive away from it at the end, even if it's one vignette you liked, that's still some art he created that you enjoyed. And I can say, honestly, there is art in this movie that I enjoyed, even if I didn't enjoy the whole thing. And even if there's problems I have with certain parts of it, which we'll get into in a moment, we get into spoilers and categories, but, um, you know, listen, I like the, I like the idea and I like the, the, the creativity behind this. And, you know, much like Rob Zombie, you know, his brother, you know, when he made House of a Thousand Corpses, and I know this is that, you know, people are going to say it's an unfair comparison because, you know, they're brothers. So, of course, you're going to compare them to each other. But, you know, Rob Zombie was a musician, a rock star. No one necessarily had to give him money to make a movie. He was always talking about it. He always wanted to do it, but no one had to do it for him. And when he made House of a Thousand Corpses, you know, they pulled it. They, they, they abandoned the movie. They said, this is too much. We're not releasing this. You know, they <laughs> gave up on the movie. Um but when you watch House of a Thousand Corpses, which I I love that movie, but then you see the growth from that to Devil's Rejects, which Devil's Rejects is, as I've said thousands of times on the show, probably my favorite horror movie of all time. You see the evolution in the storytelling and the growth of Rob Zombie as a filmmaker from one film to the next. Now, you can argue he's regressed at points when you go see Lords of Salem or some of the other movies that I'm not as big of a fan of. But Rob Zombie's voice is always in his movies. You can see his voice and and what he wants. He know he's a very, uh, a very um, uh, original director. You know, very much like Tarantino is another example. When you go see a Tarantino movie, you know you're seeing a Tarantino movie. When right. you go see a Rob Zombie movie, whether you like it or love it or hate it, you know it's a Rob Zombie movie. From this one film with Spider One, he's found his voice. He's found a vision, and I am very curious to see what he does next. And I know that's a bit of a backhanded compliment because I'm saying that like this film wasn't perfect. I don't expect it to be perfect, but there's enough in this film that I like that I'm like, yeah, I want to see what he does next. 
Oh yeah, I definitely want to see what he does next. And it's because of that element that I that I said, which is he wanted to make something scary. He wanted to make a horror movie, which I'm getting I'm kind of getting tired of of getting put in my face like check out this new horror movie and then I watch it it's not a horror movie. Like he didn't forget. He didn't forget to make a horror movie while he made his movie. Now the irony of it all is what I really appreciated in the long run. And it's, and it's a personal appreciation. I don't think everybody who watches this movie will appreciate it. Like I did, whether this was intentional or not, most of the characters that you see on screen are probably over 30 and I'm guessing more, more than not, most of them are over 35 and they're all struggling artists. That got to me on a personal level because (laughs) I am over 40 and I'm, and I'm a struggling artist myself. I mean, I'm, I say struggling. I'm struggling to get my art out there. I'm not, you know, I'm, I, 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 I'm not crying poverty or anything like that. Don't get me, don't get me misconstrued in that respect. But I've always pursued art, and I've noticed that all of the main characters tend to at least be over 35 for the most part. Maybe one or two are not, uh, but at least the main subjects all tend to be older. They all tend to be going after their dreams still and there's a torture to that and by the way spider one he's definitely over 35 i think i believe chrissy foxes i'm not 100 sure on that um there's something about that that got to me i was like yeah i'm a i'm also a wayward artist and it's hard to taste success and it can drive you insane and maybe you'd make a deal with the devil just to get a taste of it whether that was intentional or not it was like all over this movie yeah no i agree i agree so with that being said patrick let's get into categories because we do want to have a discussion later about our favorite low-budget horror films. We talked about that at the top of the show. This is very much a low-budget, micro-budget kind of horror film, so we're going to talk about some of our favorite low-budget horror films later in the show. So let's get into categories. Of course, now we are into spoiler territory, so if you haven't seen Allegory, it's currently over on Shudder. If you have Shudder, hey, Shudder. Uh, uh-huh. You can go watch it on there for, uh, for part of your subscription right now. So again, um, go check it out. With that being said, let's get into spoilers. Let's get into categories. The so first things first, we're going to kick things off with best performance in this film. Again, very small film. You're talking about a cast of, I think, maybe at the end, maybe like 10 or 12 people, I think. At the end, maybe that's how many people are in this movie, which is, you know, I mean, not nothing, but it's also not huge. Mm-hmm. Um, so who is your best performance in Allegoria? Uh, my best performance in this film actually goes to Chrissy Fox, who plays Brody. Um, it, she, you would you blink and you miss her. She's actually like the co-star of the first uh, the, the, the first anthology or the, the first vignette. And, you know, it, it's it's so overtaken by the uh, the acting coach that you don't even you don't even register that she's in that scene. But she's in the final scene, which is actually about her roommate uh, or for the most part, it's like half about her roommate and half about herself. And she has this monologue after she gets possessed um, that I thought was really powerful. And I was like, whatever Chrissy Fox is doing right now, she's totally intentionally like sticking her landing and I was impressed by that. And she also has some like contortion possession stuff that she does in that same uh, scene at the end of the movie. She she actually is when you see the cover art, there's like a demon on there. That's Chrissy Fox in there. So she has these moments that she really shines in uh, in in Allegoria. You know, it's, it's funny because uh, I wasn't aware until after I started doing research, the relationship she shared with Spider One, the director. I had no idea going into it. I the only person I, I recognized. A couple of the actors in this film, Scout Taylor Compton, of course, was one, and the co-star she had in her vignette. I recognized him from a yeah. few things I'd seen him in as well. I didn't really recognize anyone else going into it, and then when I did the research and I found out who she was, I was pretty impressed. Now, 
again, very much like his brother, Rob Zombie puts his wife, Sherry Moon Zombie, in movies, and I think she's actually done a pretty... I mean, she, her as baby is incredible. Yeah, she's great, she's as, great baby. as baby. She's great as baby. And I thought she did great in Halloween as well when she played Mrs. Myers. I thought she mm-hmm. did a solid job in that as well. But you also, we also know how nepotism works in, in the business. We also know, like, you know, would you have gotten this job if you weren't such and such as wife? And in this case, we're talking about a very low-budget movie. You're talking about... You're trying to control costs. What better way to do that than bring in your, you know, wife who also happens to be an actress? I get it. But I will say her performance is really strong. I thought she did a really good job because she ultimately, I think, had the most material to work with from the opening scene to that ending scene where she's kind of like bookending the movie. She actually has the most to work with. She has that big monologue. I thought she did really solid. Like, I was really impressed. And I didn't know anything about her going into it until after doing my research afterwards. Yeah. No, I I, I was... I was blown away by that by that little monologue at the end for sure. I was just like, "Oh shit, Chrissy Fox really knows what she's doing." Yeah. Now it should be no surprise what my best performance is, and I feel mm. like you. Pro- I feel like you probably picked Chrissy Fox partially because you knew which one I was going to pick. I did. I did not. I did not omit a pick this time. I genuinely like. I was impressed by Chrissy Fox's monologue, but I was like. I already know what Damon's pick is. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't have to. I didn't have to guess at all. Yeah, you did not have to guess at all. It's Scout Taylor Compton. Uh, if you go back and listen to our episode of Halloween when we did Rob Zombie's Halloween, and it wasn't that long ago, so go back in the archives and check out that episode. I raved about Scout Taylor Compton. You know, she stepped into an impossible role playing Laurie Strode in a Halloween remake. You know, you're playing the part that Jamie Lee Curtis has made famous for over 40 years now, and you're stepping into that role. And I just raved about her. I thought she did an incredible job in what you and I agreed was the scariest Halloween movie. Um, She's great. I've seen her in a lot of stuff since then. And I listened to her podcast. Now she does a podcast with Danielle Harris called talk scary to me. I enjoy her. She's a, she's a fun actress. She's really smart. And um, I loved her in this film because the part she plays, she's on basically a, a first date with a guy. And when they go back to his house, like she is, she is, um, everything you need an actress to be in that scene she is sweet and and kind of alluring she's a little scary and a little like you know seductive and then she's downright terrifying and she employs all of that in a vignette that lasts 15 minutes or you know whatever it is like you know a very short vignette she does it so well like watching that scene and listen i'm not gonna lie like i you know i love i I like i went into this film waiting to see what she did because she was the one name i recognized so of course i already kind of had a bit of an eye on her but then seeing what she did watching it from that perspective i was like god like i get it like i because she she plays that part so well she's very uh, you know seductive but she's also scary And I love that duality she has in her character in this movie. And I just thought she did a tremendous job. And uh, yeah, I just, I I, I think she's great. And you know, my only, my only complaint when it comes to Scout Taylor Compton is I wish she did more. I wish she did more, you know, I wish she would get more big roles because I think she's fantastic. And not to say that she doesn't do movies. She does. And I like the movie she's in. I'm just saying like, to me, she could have had like a Jamie Lee Curtis kind of career. Like she could have been picked out and done like a lot of big movies since then. Now she's had a great career. I'm not downplaying her career, but I think she's that good. Like, I think she's tremendous. She is. And, and you're right about what she can do in the 10 minutes or so that they give her an allegoria. She can, she kind of runs the gamut of all uh, emotions for, for what is 
basically a, 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 a vignette about a first date and and the guy is dating or on a date with scout taylor compton's character and she's an artist and she kind of takes him through this you know playful little game talking about art and it gets a little crazy and a little serious and all that and and um that's one of the better i think that's one of the better vignettes and there's a great subversion of expectation at the end of it um yeah, I think I think she did actually did a really uh, a really good job, and obviously she was she was one of the bigger gets. Um, and and I, I do want to give a shout out also to John Ennis, who is in the very first vignette, and he plays uh, an acting coach, a uh, real powerhouse performance. He plays this blowhard acting coach, and uh, to me, I was just like, damn, I've seen acting coaches like this guy who just really like you know they they really uh, are fire and brimstone uh, acting coaches who were trying to pull the rage from you and all that stuff. I thought he actually did a pretty good job too. Yeah, and I also do want to give a shout to uh, her co-star in that scene, Adam Bush, who actually played her date, and he's actually been in quite a few things I've seen as well. He was the other person I recognized yeah. right away. Um, I thought he did a really good job because there's one part that kind of cracked me up where they're talking about our date and he's like, says something like, I think it's going really well. And she's just like, uh, they're talking about like her, him asking her out. And he's like, she's like, you know, I'm way out of your league. He's like, Oh, you're so out of my league. <laughs> I just thought that was really playful because like that, like legitimately sounded like a first date conversation. Like it literally played like that. Like, she's like, I'm so out of your league. And she's like, Oh, you are so out of my league. <laughs> yeah. They were having a great little like back and forth, like a couple of very like, you know, skilled actors that do this all the time. And, uh, their, their chemistry was really good. Yeah. They did a really good job. All right. Let's talk about, our favorite character, and I'm just going to spoil it ahead of time because we have the same favorite character. Oh, okay. uh, I, don't, I don't know if that's necessarily a shocker, but yeah. So talk about your favorite character because it's also my favorite character. Uh, so there's one vignette uh, that basically is following a screenwriter late at night sitting in his apartment, sitting in his apartment, like writing the next great horror film. So as far as he thinks, and he's kind of reading it to himself out loud as he frantically types at it. And then he, he, he you know, he hits fade out or whatever, and he thinks he's done and he's gotten this great first draft out. And it turns out that uh, his killer in his first draft has come to life. And has a lot of notes for the script, which I thought was funny. It was it was just that was the like I think the the cheekiest of of all the vignettes because it was it was the the character is called the Whistler. That's the name of the of the the serial killer in his script who comes to life and gives. Uh, um, uh, let me get his name right. Um, Eddie, I think it was Eddie Park. Yeah, yeah. Eddie, Eddie Park is the screenwriter, and he gives Eddie Park his notes, and he gives them his notes uh, in in a real and physical way, and uh, the the way he he gives him his feedback through lots of horror. I just thought it was a really actually a really funny um, scene, and I thought the Whistler was a really funny character. The idea that the guy giving you notes is a a, a hulking, brutish serial killer who's going to uh, chop you up as he gives you the notes. Yeah, I thought it was that was that was ended up being my favorite vignette. Uh, that was my favorite one. It was funny. It was also a little disturbing at points. The killer comes to life, and I want to give credit where credit's due. Adam Markinowski is the actor who played the Whistler. But and please correct me if I'm wrong, because I swear, like when I first saw it, did you not get a little bit of like steroid-ridden Nick Offerman, like a little bit? Like he had <laughs> a, a little, little bit. He had a little bit of a Nick Offerman thing going on there. Like the way if you listen, if you look at him and listen to him, he had a little bit of a Nick Offerman thing going on there. I mean, for a second, like, I thought he was the. Uh, I thought he was Michael Myers from uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween Two. Oh yeah, Tyler. Uh, Tyler. Tyler Maine. Yeah, Tyler. Yeah, Main, I was like, yeah. is that Tyler Maine? And it's not. It's Adam Marsanowski. Yeah, but he did a really good job. But he was funny and also like foreboding, like uh, 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 also uh, you know, a little terrifying, a little bit. Um, 
Yeah, uh, he was he was equal parts like the the part you want where you want him being a little bit you know scary but or a little bit funny but also a little bit menacing. That's the word I was looking for, menacing. Right. Um, he was great. You know, he smashes Eddie's head down. <laughs> There's like one of my favorite parts of the movie is when he's talking about his rewrite, his note, and he's like, "I think it'd be better." If I, you know, caught old Steve coming in, I take his dumb Steve face and I smash <laughs> it into a door. And he actually smashes Eddie's face into a desk. He goes, I can smash it in the door or a desk. And it was just funny. Like he does that. <laughs> or, a desk. Just, or a desk. It was yeah. really well. Like that was the, to me, that was the best, that was the best written scene. And like the one that played out the best and also the funniest, like it was just a really well orchestrated scene. And the Whistler was just a funny, like. And and you said like the notes like there and again I don't know why I keep going back to this but the Rob Zombie years ago he did a pod he did a Joe Rogan podcast and they were talking about when he made Halloween which was like his first like big studio you know backed project you know remaking right. Halloween's a big deal and he was talking on the show telling Joe Rogan about like how many notes he was getting from the from the studio all the time at the point at that point it was I believe Harvey Weinstein. And he was getting just loads of notes about like everything he was doing. He's like, Jesus Christ. He's like, this. he's like, is this what it's like to get a studio movie made? Because my God, he's like, it was just so many notes that rang in my head when I watched those things. It was so funny because every screenwriter who has ever had anything made, whether movie, TV, whatever it is, you get notes, you get studio oh, notes yeah. and you always get a lot of them. You know what I mean? They know better than you. Now, sometimes they're genius. I've heard a lot of directors, a lot of writers say like, if not for those notes, we wouldn't have gone in this direction. It wouldn't have been the movie you got. Other times I heard horror stories, which is very much like this. Where they're like, Oh my yeah. God, the notes I got, like the changes they wanted to be made were just like mind numbingly stupid. Uh, that was like what I was thinking, watching this scene. It, it was, it, to me, it was my favorite vignette. Oh yeah, no, it's a, it's a lot of fun, and we'll talk a little bit more about it in our in our best story category. Um, well, I guess we'll. Sorry, I'm I'm over here taking over the categories, Damon. Best scare. What was your best scare? Uh, once again, we have the same one. It's the one that made me jump the most, and it's when uh, yeah. Ivy, who is played by Scout Taylor Compton, goes on her date, and she has kind of a weird, like almost a creepyish interaction with her date, and then she ends up leaving for the night when it just looks like maybe they're gonna get together. They're not, and then she decides to leave. She goes out to her car. Looks like the night's over, and you're still not like. I'll be honest. This was another reason why I like this vignette because they subverted expectations. Because through the whole thing, Scout Taylor Compton's character Ivy is kind of the creepy one, and her date is kind of like the straight. You know, very straight and narrow, like, you know, tucked yeah. in tucked in shirt guy is what I yeah. call him. Tucked kind in of shirt a nerd. Guy. Yeah, like tucked in, you know, he's the guy who tucks his shirt in his pants. I'm not saying there's anything wrong if you tuck your shirt <laughs> into your pants, but I'm quietly judging you if you tuck your shirt into your pants. Uh he's the tuck shirt guy. And like so like in that moment when she left and then she decides to come back, my first thought was, okay, something bad's gonna happen to her. Because the whole time they made her kind of like a little bit creepy, a little bit, you know, menacing, whatever. And then he opens the door and it's like this kind of like almost like, oh, are they going to like, you know, hook up? Is this going to be like the moment? Right. And then she smacks him with a freaking hammer. And it's just a really well done, like surprise. I didn't see coming in that. Moment. I knew something was coming. I didn't know what, but I didn't actually expect that to be what happened. And it was just a really good scare. And it was the one that made me go, oh, geez, like that got me. 
Yeah, it was a good subversion of expectations, and that's always sets you up for a really good scare. Um, it just it it did seem like we were going in the other direction when she turns back to go to the house, and they they lull you into like a sense of security, like like it got tense for a moment, and then they kind of brought it back down, and then they bring it to this point where she's coming back, and it there's very much this like vibe going on where it's like, oh, I think they're into each other, and then wham, she slams him in the head, and like I like it made me jump. I I didn't see it coming. Yeah, and I, again, I actually, at that point, I thought, okay, she's been the creep, kind of the creepy, kind of weird little bit the whole time. I thought maybe he was going to turn the tables on her and it was going to become something totally different. And then, it, you know, she ended up going a step further, which was even a funnier, like kind of a different twist. So, right. yeah, I enjoyed it. Let's talk about best gore, because there was some gore in this movie. Uh, what was your favorite gore in Allegoria? <laughs> I was actually having trouble picking it because there were there were all these, like, uh, you know, again, it's a micro budget film, but I think each gore was concerted effort. Like, and that's what I really appreciated. They were trying to give you, you know, a, a, a visceral experience at times. But I really I had to go with Eddie Park's broken arm when he's dealing with the whistler who's giving him notes. And the, the whistler snaps his arm and the bone comes jutting out and he's down on the floor, like writhing in pain. Is it like the best looking broken arm I've ever seen? No, but just something about all of it and the way the actors are selling it really worked for me. Yeah, I like that. And so that was a really good one. The entire Eddie scene was good in terms of like gore and like torture. When he smashed his face into death, that was really solid. Yeah. Mine oh, actually yeah. bloodied up. He gets yeah. brutalized. Mine came from the same scene a little later when uh, the Whistler is talking about another scene changing and he's going after the girl Janice in the movie. Like he's talking about, and there's a point where he literally cuts her open and pulls out her heart. And mm. he's literally holding her heart in his hand. He's like, is it too much? It might be too much. And I'm just like, maybe it's too much. Maybe it's too much. And he's just like tossing her heart like a little baseball in his hand and that i thought was the best gore because like because <laughs> in that moment eddie gets really scared because he's like no 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 don't do it because in his he's mind like murder he, brutally murdering his girlfriend yeah mur brutally murdering his girlfriend and he like slits her up and then cuts out her heart and he's just like too much yeah it might be too much i'm just like <laughs> and he's literally tossing her heart in his hand i was like all right that was pretty good gore that was pretty good yeah and they got a, a bunch of other ones in there too i actually really liked and that you see it in the trailer was the um the weird like smiling tar it was almost like a tar man oh yeah the one in the in the painter scene yeah yeah there was something about that like and you could see it was low budget but it was like it was done to good effect like he would he just had this really disturbing smile on his face and these dead eyes and he'd stare straight at straight at the the painter and i was like damn that's kind of creepy and you know there was something really weird and disturbing about it it reminded me a little bit. You talked about Tarman. It reminded me a little bit of the Burnt Man from uh, Beetlejuice. Remember that? When yeah, he goes to the, a little bit of he, that too. When he goes there, to the yeah. dead waiting room, that's what it reminded me of the Burnt Man in the waiting room. So, <laughs> got a light? Yeah, I got a light. Uh, <laughs> all right, let's talk about creepiest scene uh, because there were a couple creepy scenes in this movie. Patrick, what was your favorite creepy scene in Allegoria? Um, th there is a scene where uh, a character by the name of Hope starts playing these uh, evil notes. You know, of course, at some point the musician aspect uh gets put into the movie and uh she's playing evil notes well hope happens to be brody's um roommate and she's playing these evil notes and brody is kind of dejected after having a bad phone call with her boyfriend who was the painter who could give a shit that she'd gotten into this big acting class again wrapping all these things around together um so brody's in the room sleeping hope is playing the dread notes and the dread notes summon the demon into Brody's body as she sleeps and she starts to contort and writhe and 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 move around and become possessed by this evil demon. I liked it. I thought that, I thought it was great atmospherically. I thought it was really well done because there are a lot of scenes like that in uh, in higher budget um, 
possession movies and you get the contour they hire like a contortionist or they do some cg this was all again all chrissy fox like doing it on her own and i thought it was good and i thought it was creepy and at some point you know her face changes over to demonically and she's like puking brown like mud onto the bed it's fucking pretty pretty creepy shit yeah it was it was pretty creepy it was real, really well done i was i i still bumped up against the whole evil notes thing that one kind of like got me i'm like all right evil notes yeah <laughs> that yeah that's been done a few times yeah it kind of got me a little bit on that one but the effects of that moment in her transformation were pretty creepy and pretty cool um mine is a little different i went a little different direction with my creepy scene because it's one that i didn't know where they were going and it's actually in a scene that didn't really didn't totally pay off for me to be honest but it still creeped me out because i didn't know where they were going and it's the opening scene and my creepiest scene honestly is when the direct when the acting teacher robert anderson wright played by john ennis is in a he's acting out a scene or trying to basically have a, a bit of um uh what's the word I'm looking for? Like a little bit of like uh, back and forth with one of the actors. He's trying yeah. to have like a bit of like uh impromptu, you know, what's the word I'm looking for when you don't script it out? What am I, what, what's the, uh, yeah, they're improvising, improvising, yeah. improvising, yeah, they're, imp- they're improvising a scene. And so he goes and he's talking to Brody's character. And this guy is just shouting. these like really weird, like what he wants out of her. He's like, I want you to imagine that you've been like, you know, buried and beaten and killed and raped and all these like really terrible things. And they zoom in and he's talking to her and you see the spit just flying out of his <laughs> mouth and like going towards her and Brody's head is down. And then that's the scene where Brody erupts and becomes a demon and like screams in his face. And you don't really see it coming, but it was just so creepy to me because there's no music. There's no score. There's no score. You got like four other actors sitting in the audience watching this. And you just got a close up on the acting teacher just shouting at her. Like he's basically trying, like he's describing what she should be thinking about to then reply to him in this impri- improvised scene. And so he's just saying all these horrific, like terrible things. And then she ends up like transforming in this demon. He ends up accidentally like awakening the demon in her. But it was so creepy that he's just like in her face shouting and, this, and the camera zooming in and you just see the spit just flying yeah. out of his mouth. It was disgusting for one, <laughs> but it was also like disturbing because it was creepy because I'm like, what is going like, even though the scene didn't really pay off in the way I wanted it to, like, I didn't really care for that scene as much. That was still creepy because it was just like, what the, what is going on here? And it also made me never want to take an acting class. <laughs> Yeah, he's got like this philosophy, I guess, that he wants to bring out the beast inside of his actors, right? Yeah, yeah. And so he's out there again doing this fire and brimstone, you know, trying to summon the beast within. And he's saying all these incredibly disturbing things to try and get the actor to channel that gutturally. And you just talk about spit flying, Damon. If you were out there and you're wondering, like, oh, like what's the big deal about six feet apart with COVID spreading? He, he shows you how COVID very easily because <laughs> it's just spraying spit out of his mouth the entire time as he's talking. You just see so all this particulate just flying. It's it's one of the, I think, more dramatically shot scenes uh, in the movie. And, and it, 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 it works out to great effect in, in that moment. And uh, and and again, why I thought uh, he, he deserved kind of a shout out as a as a as a great performance in the film. Yeah, I also got to say, I have a real issue with personal space. Like, I do not like being, I do not like people being really close to me. So that also spoke to me on a personal level when his spittle is just going everywhere. And I'm just like, dude, say it, don't spray it because this is yeah. too much. Like, it made me uncomfortable because, like, <laughs> if I was in front of him, like, I would have full on punched that dude. Like, there would have been no acting. Like, I would have just full on slugged him. 
I would imagine in that scene, Brody like like raising up an umbrella and and un, unfolding it to fucking block the shower of spittle that's coming at her. Because you know, just, Chrissy Fox was getting covered with spit. Oh my god, yeah, she was covered. Like they had to like they had to put a plastic sheets for the like the retake <laughs> like because a, like a like a Gallagher show. Yeah, full on. Yeah, like, you got watermelon and a sledgehammer. <laughs> Here's John Ennis. Uh, yeah, so that was the one that got me because it was creepy because the way he was like getting that guttural reaction from his actor was just so disturbing. Yeah, it really was. Yeah. Uh, all right. Ultimately, let's talk about our best story before we get into our conversation about our favorite low budget and micro budget horror films. So what was ultimately your best story in Allegoria? Um, I, I actually liked the final story, which was uh, about Brody and her friend Hope, uh, who finds the evil notes. Um, there was just something about you know, the, the kind of build up again, like I said earlier, the whole idea of like a couple of older people pursuing their artistic endeavors like that got me. And that, and that story in particular is very much about that. Um, and then when when she when when Hope summons the the dread note and possesses Brody unwittingly, um, the the being the specter or whatever, a couple times appears uh, and is in the room. And I thought that was done to really good effect. It was creepy. It could have easily been my creepiest scene as well. Um, but it's, it's part of the same story that I picked for my creepiest scene. I just liked how it all played out. And it was very like a, a very ominous, very spooky. That was a, that, that was, I think to me, one of the spookier and it had its moments of lightheartedness too, like where hopes off with her band. And one of her bandmates is like a total stoner, like, talking about the the deeper meaning of music and all that shit like it brought me back to a lot of different places in my life as as pursuing the arts and so i did something about that particular story really got to me on that level and on the creep level i'm pretty sure when i went through a couple quarters of graphic art and design college before i switched over to english literature i'm pretty sure i went to college with that guy Oh, who yeah. was telling the story like who looked like he had taken a couple too many hits of ecstasy at some point in his life right and yeah. was talking about like the you know his eyes are all wide and he's like talking about like the 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 the, the torturous nature of music and i'm like oh i was like did i go to college with you like seriously like, was there a friday night we we're eating pizza on ecstasy and we were talking about this i'm pretty sure i went to college with that guy uh, very college coffee shop talk vibes Dude, seriously like i'm i'm pretty sure i went to college with that guy uh yeah that was you know the, and that was also the longest of the vignettes that was the ending one that was yeah. the one that went on the longest and, and again the only issue i the only thing i bumped up against with that one was the whole evil notes thing just because it's been done and i was kind of like eh, you know again that's a story issue more than it was an execution issue it's just like it was kind of a weird story choice but it also did play back into what the entire theme of the film was, which was art, you know, whether it was actual art right. and painting or acting or, you know, whatever. So, yeah. Uh, or in, you know, Scout Taylor Compton's character sculpting of a way, I guess. Uh, yeah. So all of it is art. Uh, mine was the Whistler. I really enjoyed the vignette with Eddie and the Whistler. I thought that was funny, but it was also disturbing because he was beating the living hell out of Eddie and cutting <laughs> him up and breaking his arm and smashing his head and cutting out hearts. And, um, yeah, I really liked that scene. And it was, it, to me, that was, that was the most straightforward scene also, because you knew right away what it was. It was him basically being, you know, getting the notes from one of his characters and the character literally torturing him to change the story. And that's kind of what it is as a creative. When you get, I know because I write, that's my living. I write for a living. When you write something and you work or something and you, and you break your, you break your back writing something. And then somebody comes back to you and says, well, you know what? This is good. But what if you did this, 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 and this and change mm -hmm. this, this, and this. Now 
that's part of the editorial process. So I get it. And I've, you know, being a professional writer for 20 years, I get it. And I understand that part of it, but there's still that little part of you inside. It hurts where you're just like, Oh, could you stab me a little harder? Can you dig it in and twist (laughs) that knife a little bit more? So when that scene played, I was like, that one made sense. Cause that's sometimes what it feels like. It feels like they're like, Oh, what if I smash his face into it? What if I smash his face into a door or a desk? What if I cut out your girlfriend's heart? Like that's what it feels like sometimes. So that was my favorite. It was funny. It was also true. Uh, it was also, you know, disturbing at elements and scary at elements. So I, that was my favorite one. That was the one that I felt like if you wanted to extend it into a full length film, you could like a, a writer who gets tortured by his characters yeah, totally. There's a movie that you could do with that where it's just Eddie like continuously being tortured by his characters because he's trying to make the perfect movie or the perfect play or whatever. And they keep coming back at him because I, I felt that, man. I felt that. I mean, trust me, I've had some notes given to me here. I'm just like, geez, you just like, could you like lube it up before you like, <laughs> like what's going on here? Like, just <laughs> lube it up. Don't, don't just, don't just, just give this man. Come on, help me out here a little bit. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I really enjoyed the Eddie Whistler scene. Yeah. See, Damon just gave Spider One his in for his next feature length film, because I mean, that is a premise that I think would would be really great. You know, he writes his first draft. He shops it around. It doesn't go anywhere. So he makes a deal with the devil and then all of his all of his killers and his characters in there come back to to haunt him. Um, I got a, a pre- I really there's something about that particular vignette that I truly appreciate. And it because it calls back to something. It calls back to Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2022. When poor uh, Sally Hardestay takes a chainsaw to the chest and gets lifted up into the air and chainsawed and her entire chest, heart and lungs are eviscerated by a chainsaw. She gets tossed 10 feet into a pile of trash and somehow still is able to talk after that. Damon, when the whistler stabs Eddie's poor girlfriend in the heart, she dies instantly. She dies within three seconds that's how it works folks like yes of course there's dramatic effect but that's beyond suspension of disbelief what they did in texas chainsaw 2022 where she takes a chainsaw to the vitalist of organs and and still manages to talk it's absolutely impossible but guess what in this micro budget film spider one shows you yeah if you take a heart if you take a fucking giant knife to the heart you gonna die quick yeah, now if she had gotten up with a heart in his hand and said, hold on now, what if he did this instead? Now, right, now if he did it to comedic effect, yeah. that's different. Yeah, but yeah, I agree. That's that's a true statement. I didn't even think about that, but that's very true. Yeah, poor, When I saw that, I go, what the fuck, T- Texas 22? Well, go back and listen to that episode if you want to hear one of our, <laughs> one of our funnier, one of our funnier uh, episodes because we do not hold back on what was an abomination <laughs> of a movie. <laughs> Uh, it was, uh, all right, let's have a little bit wider conversation talking about low budget horror films, because, you know, that's kind of the staple of horror in a lot of ways. You know, we didn't, you know, while we have in recent years, you know, and, and really I'm talking about the past like 30, 30 to 40 years gotten, you know, big studio budgeted horror films. When you think about like starting with Halloween, you know, and and, and starting further back with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but you know, Halloween was the one that really blew up, you know, shot on, I think $325,000 at the time became the most successful independent film of all time. We all know the story about Halloween, but when you get into like Friday the 13th, they didn't have a big budget. Nightmare on Elm Street didn't have a big budget. Like it's not like these films that we know and love so well and are become iconic films had these massive, like, you know, 
$50 million budgets. You know what I mean? So horror is kind of built on low budget creativity in a lot of ways. I mean, that's, that's what excited. That's another element that excited me when I was watching this, I was like, damn it. Look at this. Spider one did with, with what little money he could and Chrissy Fox. Cause I know they both, they both worked on it intensely. Um, they did with very little, they made a damn scary movie, which is every horror fan's dream. I, I've never bumped into a horror fan who didn't have somewhere in the back of their brain the desire to make a movie. Yeah. And they made one. They fucking did it. They made one. And we've we've seen that go wrong before, Damon. Allegoria is not the is not a perfect movie. It's not the best horror movie I've ever seen. But I see the effort and I see what was uh what was done in there, and I was impressed. And it made me think about um, you know. Texas Chainsaw, the original one, and one of my favorite movies of all time, literally one of my favorite horror or not movies that I've ever seen, uh, was done on a very shoestring budget. I think it was still a lot. And even for the Times, I think it was like $700,000, somewhere in that range. Uh, the, the research I did on Texas Chainsaw Massacre said, and again, I'm going what Google's telling me here, so forgive me if I'm wrong. They did it, They said it was done for $140,000. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, again, I've heard so many different numbers that are flown through the years. Let's say, let's say that it's somewhere, it lands somewhere between 140 and 700. That's nothing for the movie that they produced. A movie that's highly influential, a movie at Texas Chainsaw, you know, influenced Ridley Scott to make Alien. Uh, it influenced Steven Spielberg. Uh, the, when they saw this, they went, holy shit, look what, look, look what can be done. Look, look what you can do to an audience with almost nothing. And I read, I follow Daniel Pearl, who was the uh, cinematographer that, uh, of the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Every few weeks, he comes up with another story. And it was them just pooling together their resources out there in Texas, and they wanted to make their damn movie. Uh, and the last story, I think he, he was talking about um, uh, a, make, a makeup artist who was not from Hollywood. She was someone who had done makeup right there locally in Texas, and uh, and they, they weren't quite sure if they wanted to use her because they were like, well, we really need to do makeup effects that are going to be super effective because this is a horror movie and it's gory. And then she she like whipped some stuff up and showed it to him. She's like, this is what I can do. And they were like, shit, actually, that's going to work. And we don't need to go hire somebody from California who's going to cost us a ton of money. Uh, they they kind of just they kind of just like, like dug in and did their damn thing. And, and so I, when I think of micro budget movies, Texas Chainsaw is like high on that list for me. Yeah. So at the top of the list for me, and it's a big film, much like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, iconic film, but a film that to this day scares me to this day. Uh, I love, and it was, and you know, people can say you can blame this film a lot too for what it launched, but the Blair Witch Project, you know, when the Blair yeah. Witch Project, I think on a $60,000 budget shot, you know, shoestring without a script, even when they started, like they did not have like a full on script when they started with nobody, you know, and, and you know, Joshua Leonard, who was in the film went on to actually have a pretty good career. He's married. Uh, to an actress I really enjoy, but he's also been a lot of, of solid films and, and TV shows. So he went on to have a career, but he, they didn't hire anyone who was like a named actor. They were just, you know, film school people who got together and made like a real, and I remember when Blair, when Blair Witch Project came out, like that was at the, like the, the earliest stages of the internet. And that was when yeah. like, we didn't know now, granted I was like a kid, but like, we didn't know I was a teenager. I didn't know like they were convincing it was real. Oh yeah. Like, this was a real found footage. Like this really happened. This really happened to these kids and we're releasing this film. Like there was a little, like eventually we all figured out it was, it was just a movie. But when they first started marketing that thing, 
there was a real buzz. Like this was a real student film of people who went through something hor- horrific. They found the footage and now they're putting it out in a movie. Do you remember that? Like, do you oh, remember? Damon, I, I remember so vividly. And one day we're going to have to talk about the Blair Witch Project because this was the early days of the internet. But it, but again, the early days of the internet means there wasn't like a ton of message forums. There wasn't there wasn't any social media at all. So there wasn't people who were going, no, like I know I know so and so. I know that actor. They're not dead. Blah blah blah. There wasn't a lot of communication out there. I remember I was working at Macy's at the time. I was still in high school working at Macy's. Um, I had a, a friend who a goth girl, and then this other girl who was like a um, she was into like fantasy, and she she fancied herself like a pixie or a fairy. <laughs> you know, these are the kind of people I was working with. And then you had me, who was like you know a, a psycho horror fan. Um, we all planned as a as a as as a as a crew, not just them, but a bunch of the people from Macy's to go watch and see it. But we were we'd have those discussions at work, and and the goth girl would be like, "No, no, no! I I read. It's like totally true. It totally happened. Like those people died, and like they, they caught it all on film." And I'm like, "There's no fucking way that's true. There's no way that happened. They're not gonna show a snuff film on fucking." <laughs> on the big screen and the pixie girl be like, I don't know. I think that's probably pretty true. You know, there's a lot of witches are real. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Like you're just going through all this crazy shit and it, and it got, I mean, talk about like fan engagement, like Blair, Witch. if you were a cinephile at the time and you and I both were, that's fan engagement. Like that's priceless. Like that means that the Blair, Witch project, if it was made for 60 grand, was engaging audiences like that. And it was a smash hit. What did it make? $600 million at the box office? It was huge. And I remember yeah. when it, I remember when it came out, the buzz was out and I went and saw it like opening weekend. And I went into that theater convinced I wasn't going to like it. I went in there skeptical. I went in there thinking this is going to be dumb. This is not going to be, how can you make a, what is found footage? And I know Blair Witch <laughs> is not the first ever found footage movie. There'll be people scream just like when you named the first slasher, people will go right. back to the Giallo film from the seventies and say, that's the real first. I understand. Right. But at the time, you know, I thought this was the first film of its kind. And I'm like, this is going to be terrible. It's shaky cameras. Nobody is actually, you know, I was like, I went into the theater ready to be like, Shh, this movie. And it scared the piss out of me when I saw it the first time. When that, that end scene, man, that end scene gets me every freak. I've seen Blair Witch Project 30 times. That end scene gets me every single time yeah. where it freaks me the fuck out. And one of the most, what I love, what I love most about Blair Witch Project is the creativity to do to make something out of nothing there is a scene that's so famous i'm not making like i mean everyone knows the scene of heather crying into the camera which is really disturbing and scary because she's literally just weeping into a camera with a close-up on her face right takes nothing just a great performance but there's another there's a couple of scenes in this movie where it's just darkness in a tent and you hear weird noises <laughs> And it's freaky. It's freaky shit. It is some freaky shit. Now, that takes nothing. There's no, no budget in that. That's literally two people outside a tent making some noise and you're recording it. That's, that's all it. it took. And that is so brilliant. And that's the other one I want to bring up. And I know it's a film you don't have the same kind of feelings about that I do. But I still enjoy it is uh, is is Paranormal Activity, which worked right. on an even cheaper budget. That was like a $16,000 budget, supposedly. Mm-hmm. some of the stuff they did in that film whether you like it or don't like it or you think it's scary or don't scary the fact that they built some of the things they did in that movie to make scary some of the things they did to subvert expectations and 
the little tricks of the camera that they did with nothing. So impressive. Like that blew me away. Cause I was just like, you know, you had basically a cast of more or less two people, the entire movie, you threw in a couple other people here and there, but you had two people basically, and everything's taking place in this one house. And you're basically, you're basically working with that to make it scary somehow. And they did it on nothing on no budget. They had nothing to work with and they did it. And that movie made bonkers amounts of money. Like that movie made a ridiculous amount of money. Cause I, do you remember we talked about Blair Witch? Do you remember when Paranormal Activity came out? They were oh, doing, yeah. they were, they were showing videos of people's reactions from the theater in like, in like night vision. You remember that? Yeah. Yep. That, that was, was part so of the crazy. promotional campaign was showing people screaming as they're watching the movie. Yeah, like how wild is that? Yeah, I mean, it is wild to me because I find that movie to be obnoxious and not not remotely scary or interesting at all. Um, mainly because to me, Blair Witch like did it. You know, Blair Witch did it, and then after that, like I knew what the trick was. You know, it was like it was like sawing the woman in half and showing the two parts still alive and then knowing how the tricks works. It never worked again for me. It just never did. Yeah. Uh, truth be told. Um, but I mean, I can't deny that they did that for even cheaper of a budget because then they were in the digital age. They could actually shoot it on digital cameras. So the guy shot it at his house and he and and where what they did with that movie was they upped the ante on the tricks, because as you're talking about with Blair Witch, that was just somebody standing outside their tent, scratching at the tent. That's all it was. It was a, a PA or, or the director just 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 making a, a something that you could do for zero dollars. You know, they had people flying across the room. They had footsteps in the in the powder and all that stuff like they they made cool effects um, and they because they probably saved a lot of money because they're shooting digitally. You don't have to shoot on film. That's expensive. Um, so they, they took advantage of and created like effects that that were probably not people were not used to seeing at the time and that made that i think something that was you know really revolutionary at the time and i think the reason it took off and the reason paranormal activity became a big deal steven spielberg saw it at a film festival and said i like this movie i think it's got a lot of potential he went to the filmmakers and said let me give you some finishing funds you could touch up a couple of these effects and make them really good and then let's put it out there like the world should see it it became a smash hit you know what i mean it impressed steven spielberg so i think that's that's something worthy of praise right yeah um and we differ we differ i really like paranormal activity i thought it was really well done it did scare me when i saw it in the theater i really did enjoy it so we differ in that we both have high regard for for blair witch uh, I do like paranormal activity, but you can even, as you said, you can still celebrate the creativity of what they did oh, with yeah. basically next to nothing. Yeah. It's the same reason we're talking about allegoria tonight. It's like these, some, somebody had an idea. Uh, they had a little bit of know-how and a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, elbow grease and they made something, you know, and yeah. I think that's rad. And then they made something to great effect, which is, I think important because yes, now in this day and age, with all the streaming sites, with uh, with the democratization of filmmaking, where you can literally make a film with your phone and do it successfully, which is a, a movie just came out this this year, um, Dashcam was shot on an iPhone 12. You know what I mean? And 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 it's out there in the world, and it's a it's a talked about horror film. So with the democratization of that, uh, the the filmmaking mediums you get a lot of stuff that is less impressive that that is that is not revolutionary and groundbreaking because you've seen it a billion times already but there are things that stand out um and to me allegory is one of them it does stand out because again 
Spider One, Chrissy Fox and company remembered to scare people or at least attempt to scare people. Right. Uh, uh, I got to take my hat off because we're getting into this weird point now where horror is very popular because of streaming, because there's constant access to horror films. Horror is having another renaissance and, and there's some great stuff. And we've already talked about it, that this year is going to be an interesting year when we go for our top picks for the year, um, because there's a lot of good stuff out there. Um, and, and so with a lot of good stuff comes a lot of bad stuff. And then there comes stuff where it's just like, okay, these guys had the basket case budget and they put together something that's like kind of scary, kind of creepy, got an interesting message that is getting hard to come by. Yeah. Excuse me. It really is. Let me give a couple more shout outs. You mentioned, of course, their basket case is another great example of a movie that had nothing. we, we, We enjoyed that movie. I also want to give a shout out to. Eraserhead, the first ever David Lynch yep. uh, film that was shot on ten thousand dollars in crazy. That's and still it's creepy. It's so a fucking creepy. creepy movie. So creepy. Also, want to say Absentia, which was Mike Flanagan's first movie before he became Mike Flanagan, the, the Mike Flanagan we know of Midnight Mass and House of uh, House on or Haunting of Hill House and all those uh, shows. Absentia was shot for seventy thousand dollars. Basically, got his foot in the door to make bigger movies. Um, yeah. Of course, the iconic we mentioned earlier, Halloween, shot on three hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. Night of the Living Dead, shot for one hundred fourteen thousand dollars. The Great George A. Romero, and you mentioned, of course, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which I saw online, shot for about one hundred forty thousand dollars. Could have been more, could have been less. I don't know, but it wasn't much. Uh, so I want to yeah. mention that one as well. So we talk about you know micro or low budget films. We, you know, a couple of I mean, Night of the Living Dead's my first horror film and one of the films that sticks with me the most of any film I've ever seen. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is one of our shared favorite films of all, not horror, favorite films, films of all time. Just films. That is, And I'm not saying you can't do a low-budget film in regular filmmaking, but horror requires a different element because you're, you're trying to scare people. You're trying to mm-hmm. frighten people in the theater. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to have a lot of expensive effects or anything like that, but it does take a different level of skill to make a scary movie. And doing it on a low budget is, is really impressive. So, yeah, low-budget horror is kind of a staple. And while I have issues, as I mentioned with Allegoria, I did enjoy a lot of this. And more than anything, I enjoy the effort and the creativity yeah. of Spider One and Chrissy Fox for what they did with this movie in terms of the writing, in terms of the directing, in terms of the execution. Not a perfect film. I'll tell you right now, probably won't end up on my top list. I'll be honest about that. Like it's not yeah. that kind of film. But much like back in the day, when we talked about host a film that a lot of people loved i was not as big of a fan of that movie but what i applauded and if you go you can you know you know this patrick and this was forever ago i applauded the creativity of making something out of nothing in a pandemic era where you can't be around each other you can't film together you can't be in the same room together they came up with an idea to make a movie. Maybe mm-hmm. it was not my favorite film ever. There's parts of it I like, parts of it, but and that's every film, you know. Even some of my favorite films of all time, I have sure. issues with. Uh, they made something out of nothing, and that deserves a standing ovation. You hit the nail on the head. You know the effort, the 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 effort really shines through in Allegoria. And, you know, we, yes, of course, host. And I, I said that I go, yeah, host is not my thing, but I can't wait to watch whatever these guys do next because 
you you see that they clearly want to make something for audiences. They want to engage audiences. Some people, some films, and even one of them reviewed that I think is still sitting on the shelf for us. I feel like they made a film because they were like, well, let's just make a movie and see how it goes. It didn't feel like they gave a shit. Like they were like, let's make this movie while we're in quarantine. And I'm I, I'm I'm purposely omitting the film, but if we ever release it, you'll know what I, you know the film I'm talking about. They made a film during quarantine. They just made it. They seem like they made it to make it. And then they were like, yeah, well, we'll and then we'll do another one right afterwards. And they're just kind of churning stuff out. Spider One, Chrissy Fox are like, no, we want to fucking make a horror movie. We want to make a scary movie. Like, how do we do it with almost no money? And and just our know-how, the things that we know how to do. How do we do that? Like, how do we do They figured it out. They did it. They accomplished it. And they did it with that effort and that passion that horror film fans have. And for that, I truly do appreciate this movie. Yes, it's not perfect. It's probably not making my top five this year. Doesn't matter. I, I saw a movie that was trying to scare me, and I appreciated that. I really did, because it's been, I'm sounding like a broken record, and I've probably said this five times in this one podcast, I've been seeing a lot of horror films right now that are just not even trying to scare people. And it's frustrating. And this was horror fans making a horror movie. They did it all on their own. I mean, you look at the credit list, it's pretty much just Spider-One or Christy Fox and a few other people, a handful of people that were helping them out. I, I, I applaud that. As a filmmaker, as a guy who just struggled right now to put together a six-minute short film, uh, you know, that it took me months to finish it, to finish six minutes of footage. I appreciate what these guys did. They put, they gave you a feature horror film. That's cool. Yeah, absolutely. So at the end of the day, the category we always close out the show with, is it scary? I would say yes. Now, is it the scariest film? No. Is it, you know, a film that I'm going to be on the edge of my seat with the entire time? No. But are there scary moments? Absolutely. Did they try to be scary? Absolutely. And did they succeed in certain parts? Absolutely. Again, this is a vignette. This is an anthology. Some are better than others. Some are scarier than others, but ultimately I thought they did a pretty good job. Is it perfect? By no stretch of the imagination is it perfect. Is it, you know, the greatest film ever? No, it's not that. But for what they had to work with, the creativity of the scares, I would say it is scary. Yeah, I would say. I would say. You know, we we say this all the time. Contextually speaking, Damon and I are highly desensitized. You know what I mean? We've got we've got a lot of callus on us. It took Scout Taylor Thompson lulling us to sleep and then trying to smack us over the head to get us to jump. But damn it, she did it. And that's more than I can say about a lot of horror movies I've been watching lately. Yeah, it takes martyrs to freak us out. Okay, that's how <laughs> that's how yeah. messed up we are. It takes martyrs to freak us out. Yeah, yeah, yeah martyrs, martyrs has to. Yeah, if you ever seen Martyrs, if you really want to be disturbed and not sleep at night, watch that freaking movie. That's what it takes to freak us out. Okay, so yeah, you get get to Martyrs level, then we're talking. But yeah, we're we're highly desensitized. Yet I can fully admit this was a good, solid, scary effort. Solid effort, man. Yeah, good job. And as I said earlier, and I do mean this sincerely, I hope Spider One makes another movie, and I will look forward to what he does next. I'm looking forward to his uh, uh, screenwriter with the villains come to life thing, because I think that's a solid idea, Damon. You can talk. You can sell that one to him. Yeah. Spider one. Give me a call, buddy. I'll help you out with this one. <laughs> Feel free. Just please do not send the dude out to my house to smash me with a hammer when I Yeah, you know. no whistler at Damon's house. Please. We have plenty of podcasts we need. We need to do. I don't need him busted up. Yeah, please. I do not want to meet my desk in that way. Uh, <laughs> all right, folks, we're going to get out of here. Of course, I want to say a big thank you as always to everyone that tunes into the show. Make sure you always check us out on all your favorite podcast platforms. Spotify, 
Apple Podcasts, uh, of course, over on my website, nerdcoremovement.com. If you got questions, comments, movies you'd like us to review, hit us up anytime on email. That is rotlivingdead at gmail.com. That's rot living dead at gmail.com and you can also hit us up on twitter anytime i am at damon martin and you are at director patrick and we will see you guys next week for another edition of rewind of the living dead thanks for tuning in we'll see you then peace